Hi everyone, this is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Here you'll find stories about lawkeepers and lawbreakers, Indian fighters, prospectors, newspaper men, and others written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later. It was a wild time in what Congressman Davy Crockett called this britches bustin' country and an important time in American history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Welcome to today's episode of 1001 Stories from the Old West. Today we have two different readings. We have Dangers of the Trail in 1865, a narrative of actual events by Charles E. Young, Chapter 4, Denver in 1865. And we're going to follow that up with Crooked Trails by Frederick Remington, first published in 1898, and we're doing chapter four, how the law got into the chaparral. One thing about Frederick Remington, his name might be familiar to you because he is in fact the same Frederick Remington that is the famed artist of the West, that is the famed painter of the West. So Frederick Remington, man of all talents, I hope we find that he writes as good as he paints. Let's see. And now, Denver, 1865. In that period, Denver was appropriately called City of the Plains. Situated 16 miles from the base of the nearest Rocky Mountain Peak and 650 miles from Atchison, Kansas, the nearest town to the east, while 700 miles to the west loomed up as from the very bowels of the earth, the beautiful city of the Mormons, Salt Lake City, Utah. The nearest forts, 200 miles distant, were Fort Cottonwood to the northeast, Collins to the north, and Halleck to the northwest. Its northern limits extended to the south fork of the Platte River, Cherry Creek running through one-third, dividing it into east and west Denver. Its population numbered about 5,000 souls. Here was to be found the illiterate man, but a grade above the coyote, lawbreakers of every kind, from every land, to men of culture and refinement. Here it stood, a typical mining town, a monument to the indomitable energy of man and his efforts to settle that barren and almost endless plain and open to the world the Rockies' unlimited hidden gold. Here were brick structures, modern for that day, the brick being made from the soil of the territory, a United States mint, a church, a school, a large warehouse, stores, and the home of the Rocky Mountain Daily News, which kept one partially in touch with the happenings in the faraway states. Isolated from the outside world, it was an ideal place of refuge for those anxious to escape the outraged law. Knights of the Green Cloth held full sway, Men in every walk in life gambled. A dead man for breakfast was not uncommon heading for the menu card. The old tree on the west bank of Cherry Creek furnishing the man. Desperados made one attempt to lay the city in ashes and certainly would have accomplished their purpose had it not been for the timely action of the vigilance committee in hanging the ringleaders. When the guilt of a suspect for any crime was in doubt, he was presented with a horse or a mule and ordered to leave between sun and sun and never return. During my four years of residence in Denver, there was but one Indian scare and it made a lasting impression on the tablet of my memory. 
A church bell pealed forth the warning over the thirsty desert of an Indian attack. Business places were closed. The women and children were rushed to the mint and warehouses for protection. Armed men surrounded the city. Pickets on horseback were thrown out in every direction. Couriers kept thundering back and forth between picket line and those in command, and others were dispatched to the different forts for assistance that never came. A look of determination stood out in the face of every one, and not a man, from clergyman to desperado within the confines of the city, who would not willingly have given up his life's blood to protect the honor of the women and the lives of the little ones. For three weary days and the same number of nights the terrible suspense lasted, but no Indian came. It was a false alarm. Denver, in its early settlement, was never attacked by the Indians except in isolated cases. The only reason that I ever heard given for their not doing so was that they knew not their strength, for there was no time in the 60s that they could not have swooped down on the place, massacred all, and buried the little mining town in ashes. For a young man to obtain work other than oxen or mule driving, we were told, was simply impossible. Not being deterred, however, by this discouraging information, we at once started out to secure work. Board was $25 a week in gold, and you had to furnish your own sleeping quarters, so not to secure work at once would quickly reduce our wealth. We had called on nearly all of the business places when my chum secured a position with a grocer and freighter. As for myself, I received little encouragement, but finally called at a large restaurant where I was offered work. I told the proprietor it was a little out of my line, but he told me that if I could not find a position to suit me, I should walk in at any time, pull off my coat, and go to work, which I did three days later. About the tenth day, the proprietor told me his lease expired and that the man who owned the building was going to conduct the business. He came in that afternoon, and I was introduced to him. Before leaving, he stepped into the office and informed me that he wanted a man next to him, or in other words, an assistant, and that the former proprietor had given me a good recommend and that he thought that I would suit him. He made me a tempting offer and I accepted. The restaurant was located on Blake Street, one of the principal business streets of the city, and kept open until early morning, as were the gambling places in the immediate vicinity. I soon discovered that the new proprietor could neither read nor write and that he conducted one of the largest private clubs in the city where gambling was carried on without limit. He paid me a large salary and allowed me everything my wild nature craved. I had charge of the entire business as well as his bank account. The restaurant was the headquarters of nearly all oxen and mule drivers, and also of the miners who came from the mountains in winter, and were of the toughest type of men of the day. All professional oxen and mule drivers, after making one round trip to the river and points in the far western territories, were paid off in Denver, and many of them would deposit with me for safekeeping, a large share of their dangerously and hard-earned dollars. They would then start out to do the town now and then taking a chance at one of the many gambling games, always returning for more money, which I would give them. And this they would continue until all was expended except enough to keep them a week when sober and a commission for doing the business, for which I was careful to look out. An individual who bore the name One-Eyed Jack boarded with us, and I could always depend on him in time of trouble. 
His vocation for a long time was a mystery, until one evening, as I was passing down a side street, he popped out from an alley with an uplifted blackjack and would have felled and robbed me had he not recognized the unearthly yell I gave. I forgave him, and afterwards he doubled his energies to protect me, and on more than one occasion saved my life. When, in his professional clothes, he was a tough-looking customer and could fight like a bulldog, he was always liberally supplied with someone else's money. Yet, with all his bad traits, his word was as good as gold. But like other similar individuals that infested Denver at that time, he finally went to the end of his tether and was presented by the Vigilance Committee with a hemp collar that deprived him of his life. Before his demise, however, a party of ten tough-looking individuals entered the restaurant and, in forceful language, demanded the best the country offered in eatables and drink. My friend, or would-be murderer, was in at that time and I noticed a look of cunning pleasure steal over his rough countenance. The strangers were dressed in corduroy trousers, velveteen coats, slouch hats, and black ties. Their shirts and collars of red flannel made a conspicuous appearance and caused their undoing later. After seeing them well cared for, I returned to the office and, calling Jack, inquired his opinion of the gents. Well, he replied, I may be mistaken, but I will just bet you a ten spot they are road agents. Yes, I said, I am inclined to agree with you, but keep mum. You may think it strange I did not give this bold highwayman away, but life in those days was sweet and I had no desire to have that young life taken, so I followed Comanche Bill's advice and strictly minded my own business. If I had not, I would not be living today. Two mornings later, on entering for breakfast, one of the band had his head done up in a bandage. From words he dropped, I was satisfied that Jack, or one of his cronies, had been improving their spare time by relieving him of his overabundance of gold. The reckless manner in which they disposed of their money and their conversation when flushed with wine betrayed their two characters and stamped them a murderous band of mountain highwaymen who made their headquarters in the fastnesses of the Rockies, near the Overland Mountain Trail, and there devoted their time to holding up stagecoaches, compelling the driver with a shot from a carbine to halt, descend, disarm, and be quiet. The passengers were then ordered to alight and stand in a row, continually being covered with guns by a part of the band and by others relieved of their personal effects. Then the stagecoach was systematically gone through, together with the Wells Fargo safe, which often contained gold in the thousands. These holdups were not infrequent and were the fear of all who were obliged to pass through these canyons of robbery and often death. The bunch that we harbored were undoubtedly as bold a band of robbers and murderers as ever infested the silent caves of the Rockies. Could their dingy walls but talk, they would reveal crimes unspeakable. I knew there were many strangers in town and was almost certain that their every movement was watched. Nor was I mistaken. The seventh day after their arrival, a young school teacher whom I knew by sight called at the restaurant and inquired by name for one of the band. I asked if he knew him. He replied no, but that he had met them in the corrals of the city and had been offered free passage back to the States if he would do their cooking. I told him of my suspicions and all I knew about them and advised him not to go with them. 
but like many others, he gave no heed. Two days later, they were missed at mealtime. The next morning, word came by courier that the entire band, including the school teacher, were dangling by the neck from the branches of cottonwood trees 12 miles down the Platte, with their pockets inside out and outfits gone. Thus was meted out, innocent and guilty alike, the Vigilance Committee Justice, which was not of uncommon occurrence. I remained with the restaurant keeper one year, when, through the assistance of influential men that boarded at the restaurant, I secured a position with the grocer. Shortly after entering his employ, I made the acquaintance of an ex-army officer, a graduate of West Point and a well-educated man, who afterwards became my boon companion. At that time, he was an ex-pork merchant from Cincinnati, an eccentric old fellow, without chick or child, and with plenty of money to loan at 3% a month. He owned a large warehouse on Cherry Creek in West Denver where he slept and did his own cooking. His evenings were passed at the store and many were the nights that we told stories and otherwise enjoyed ourselves. He was a silent member of the firm and I was wise enough to keep on the right side of him. During that time, the head of the firm ran for Congress on the Democratic ticket. Such an election I never want to see or go through again. Large wagons loaded with barrels of all kinds of liquor on tap were driven from pole to pole. Many more ballots were cast in each precinct than there were voters, and by night nearly the entire male portion of the inhabitants were a drunken, howling mass. The outcome of the election resulted in the governor giving the Democratic nominee the certificate of election, the Secretary of the Territory favoring the Republicans. The governor left the city that night and never returned. The contest terminated in the Republican Congress seating the Republican candidate and Andrew Johnson, then President of the United States, appointing the Democratic candidate Governor of Colorado. A year from that time, General Grant was inaugurated and shortly afterwards the governor's head went into the basket and mine fell on the outside. On another occasion, there was to be a prize fight at Golden City, 16 miles from Denver. My friend, the ex-pork merchant, I could see was anxious to attend, but did not wish to lower his standard of dignity by doing so. So the subject was not mentioned, save in a casual way, until the morning of the fight, when he entered the store, puffing and blowing, stamping the floor with his hickory cane, and mopping his crimson brow with an old-fashioned bandana handkerchief. Said, Charlie, let's go to that infernal fight. I don't approve of it, but let's go. All right, I said. I was in for any kind of sport. I left everything, locked the store, and started out to procure a rig, but found that there were none to be had for love or money. The only article of propulsion we could hire were saddle mules. Both quickly mounted and on a slow trot started for the ring. We had been there less than an hour when both of us became thoroughly disgusted and started on the return trip. When about seven miles from Denver and going at a lively pace for a mule, the major's animal stiffened both front legs and placing his hooves firmly in the sandy road permitted the major's chunky little body to pass over his head and through space for about 10 feet, landing with much force on his stomach. The old fellow was an artist at curse words, and the more I laughed, the more he cursed. He was a sprightly little fellow, and on gaining his feet, grabbed for the bridle. But Mr. Mule shook his head, made a sidestep, and the devil could not have caught him again until he reached the barn. 
I dismounted, and with much difficulty, my friends scrambled into my saddle, with myself on behind. But my long-eared critter objected, and the fun commenced. He bunted and kicked. All of a sudden, his hindquarters rose, and like lightning, his long, lanky legs shot high into the air. First, I went off, and on gaining a sitting position with mouth, ears, and eyes full of sand, I witnessed a spectacle befitting the clumsiest bareback rider in one of his first lessons. The old major had both arms affectionately entwined around the mule's thick neck and was hanging on with desperation. Up and down he went, up and down went the hindquarters of that unkind brute, bunting and kicking the major's little body, keeping taps with the ups and downs, and every time he caught his breath, he let out a war whoop that would do credit to a Comanche brave. The old mule finally dumped him all in a heap and followed his mate to Denver. Such an appearance as both presented, each blaming the other for our misfortune and vowing we would never be caught in another prize fight. Lame, bruised, crestfallen, we walked the remainder of the way into Denver. Each cautioned the other to say nothing of our misfortune. But the two mods had carried the news ahead, and we were the laughing stock of the town for the next nine days. At another time, I was attending a performance in the Old Languish Theater, when from the stage I was informed I was wanted in the bar room of the building, a necessary adjunct to all Western theaters in those days. Upon entering, I was taken by the hand by one of those trusty and warm-hearted stage drivers of the Plains and Rockies, and told that my chum had been caught in one of those treacherous mountain snowstorms on the Cashlaputa River, two miles above Laporte, and was badly frozen, and if he didn't receive medical aid at once, could not survive. I left the theater at once and commenced preparing plans for the trip. I started, unaccompanied, the following afternoon at 2.30 on a 150-mile ride. My conveyance was a long, old-fashioned buggy. The buggy, which was well filled with straw, blankets, medicine, grub, and a commissary bottle, had two good roadsters hitched in front to wheel me to the rescue of my friend or to an ignominious death. I had not only Indians to fear, but the treacherous elements. The trail ran close to the base of the mountains. It was a lovely May day. I was obliged to make 32 miles that night to reach cover. Less than half of the distance had been traveled when the wind veered suddenly to the north, mild at first, then a hurricane of anger, roaring and blowing with such force as to nearly upset the buggy. Dark clouds gathered and floated around those silent peaks of ages. Lightning darted hither and thither among the stalwart pines, which were creaking, bending, and crashing. Clap after clap of thunder peeled through and from those dismal canyons, vibrating between nature's slopes of granite, quartz, and rock. The din was fearful. Rain fell at first, then turned to snow. Just before it became dark, I adjusted the front piece of the buggy. I urged my faithful steeds to faster speed, and at the same time gave them the rain. As I did so, they left the trail. Cold and chilled to the marrow, or very bone, I took frequent drafts from the commissary bottle, and fought with all my power against sleep, but it was useless. On gaining partial consciousness, two squaws were bending over me, rubbing me with all their Indian strength, and a third forcing something warm down my throat. Men, rough of dress, 
were smoking and playing cards. Revolvers, chips, and gold was in front of each, with plenty of the latter in the center of the table. I knew not if they were friends or mountain highwaymen. Many claim that horses are dumb brutes with no instinct, but that faithful pair on leaving the trail avoided a long bend and made straight for the Adobe Stage Ranch, 16 miles away. On reaching it, they ran the buggy pole through the only opening of that mud shack, rousing the inmates to action and bringing me to safety. The large Concord coach filled with passengers soon arrived from Denver, and owing to the severity of the storm put up for the night. The time was passed in smoking, drinking, and playing cards. At six o'clock the next morning, the coach pulled up at the door. The storm was over, but not the wind. The cold was intense. My team soon came up, but their ears and noses were badly frostbitten and otherwise showed the effects of the storm. I followed the coach, but for a short distance only, as the snow, which was drifting badly, had obliterated the trail. The six black horses on the coach were too much for my two bays, and soon left me far in the rear. My compass had been lost, and by noon I was back at the ranch I had previously left, the horses having made nearly a complete circle without my knowledge. I secured another compass, and at nine o'clock that evening rolled into Laporte, a city of adobe ranches and a stage station, where I put up for the night. A place of two or three houses in those days was called a city. I was informed that my chum was two miles up the river and in bad shape. The next morning, I was up at daybreak. After grub, I started and found my companion, quartered in a little old log cabin at the base of the mountains, and being cared for by an aged squaw and her daughter, the old buck being out caring for the cattle. My chum had encountered the same kind of a storm as his rescuer, and unable to find his way, was obliged to remain out the entire night and only 100 feet from the cabin. Both of his feet were badly frozen. The Indians had done everything possible for him. The daughter, for an Indian, was extremely pretty, and I soon discovered that she was very much taken with my chum. I applied the remedies which I had brought. Then the little Indian maiden bundled him up, and with the promise that he would return, they parted. We were at once off on the return trip and arrived at the stage ranch where I was cared for the previous night at just six o'clock. On driving up to the door of the station, all three of the reaches of the buggy broke and gently dropped us to the ground. Fortunately, there was a blacksmith connected with the station, and I assisted him through the long night, forging reaches and repairing the buggy. At daylight, we were off, reaching Denver safely at 3.30 that afternoon and making the trip in just three days. Both of my friend's feet had to be amputated at the insteps. He was very grateful and quite conscious of the fact that true friendship still existed. And that concludes Denver in 1865, a narrative of actual events by Charles E. Young. We'll take a short break for sponsor messages. And now, How the Law Got into the Chaparral by Frederick Remington from his book, Crooked Trails. You have heard about the Texas Rangers, said the deacon to me one night in the San Antonio Club. Yes, well, come up to my rooms and I'll introduce you to one of the old originals. Dates way back in the 30s. 
There aren't many of them left now, and if we can get him to talk, he will tell you stories that will make your eyes hang out on your shirt front. We entered the Deacon's cozy bachelor apartments, where I was introduced to Colonel Rip Ford of the old-time Texas Rangers. I found him a very old man, with a wealth of snow-white hair and beard, bent but not withered, as he sunk on his stiffened limbs into the armchair. We disposed ourselves quietly and almost reverentially while we lighted cigars. We began the approaches by which we hoped we would loosen the history of a wild pass from one of the very few tongues which can still wag on the days when the Texans, the Comanches, and the Mexicans chased one another over the plains of Texas and shot and stabbed to find who should inherit the land. Through the veil of tobacco smoke, the ancient warrior spoke his sentences slowly, at intervals as his mind gradually separated and arranged the details of countless fights. His head bowed in thought, anon it rose sharply at recollections, and as he breathed the shouts and lamentations of crushed men, the yells and shots, the thunder of horses' hooves, the full fury of the desert combats came to the pricking ears of the deacon and me. We saw through the smoke the brave young faces of the hosts which poured into Texas to war with the enemies of their race. They were clad in loose hunting frocks, leather leggings, and broad black hats, had powder horns and shot pouches hung about them, were armed with bowie knives, Mississippi rifles, and horse pistols, rode Spanish ponies, and were impelled by destiny to conquer, like their remote ancestors, the godless hosts of pagan who came swimming o'er the northern sea. Rip Ford had not yet acquired his front name in 1836 when he enlisted in famous Captain Jack Hayes' company of rangers, which was fighting the Mexicans in those days, and also trying, incidentally, to keep from being eaten up by the Comanches. Said the old colonel, a merchant from our country journeyed to New York, and Colonel Colt, who was a friend of his, gave him two five-shooters. Pistols they were, and little things. The merchant in turn presented them to Captain Jack Hayes, the captain liked him so well, he did not rest till every man jack of us had two apiece. Directly, mused the ancient one with a smile of pleasant recollection, we had a fight with the Comanches. Up here above San Antonio, Hayes had 15 men with him. He was doubling about the country for Indians. He found sign and after cutting their trail several times, he could see that they were following him. Directly, the Indians overtook the rangers, and there were 75 Indians. Captain Hayes, bless his memory, said, They're fixing to charge us, boys, and we must charge them. There were never better men in this world than Hayes had with him, went on the colonel with pardonable pride. And mind you, he never made a fight without winning. We charged, and in the fracas killed 35 Indians. Only two of our men were wounded. So you see... The five-shooters were pretty good weapons. Of course, they won any account compared to these modern ones, because they were too small. But they did those things. Just after that, Colonel Colt was induced to make bigger ones for us, some of which were half as long as your arm. Hayes? Oh, he was a surveyor, and used to go out beyond the frontiers about his work. The Indians used to jump him pretty regular, but he always whipped him, and so he was available for a ranger captain. And then, hmm, let's see. And here the old head bobbed up from his chest where it had sunk in thought. 
There was a commerce with Mexico just sprung up. But this was later. It only shows what that man Hayes used to do. The bandits used to waylay the traders, and they got very bad in the country. Captain Hayes went after them. He struck them near Uvalde and found the Mexicans had more than twice as many men as he did. But he caught them napping, charged them afoot, killed 25 of them, and got all their horses. I suppose, Colonel, you have been charged by a Mexican lancer? I inquired. Oh, yes, many times. What did you generally do? Well, you see, in those days, I reckoned to be able to hit a man every time with a six-shooter at 125 yards, explained the old gentleman, which no doubt meant many dead lancers. Then you do not think much of a lance as a weapon, I pursued. No, there's but one weapon. The six-shooter, when properly handled, is the only weapon. Mind you, sir, I say properly. And here the old eyes blink rapidly over the great art as he knew its practice. Then, of course, the rifle has its use. Under Captain Jack Hayes, 60 of us made a raid once after the celebrated priest leader of the Mexicans, Padre Jorante, which same was a devil of a fella. We were very sleepy. Had been two nights without sleep. At San Juan, every man stripped his horse, fed, and went to sleep. We had passed Padre Herante in the night without knowing it. About 12 o'clock the next day, there was a terrible outcry. I was awakened by shooting. The Padre was upon us. Five men outlying stood the charge and went under. We gathered, and the Padre charged three times. The third time, he was knocked from his horse and killed. Then Captain Jack Hayes awoke, and we got in a big casa. The men took to the roof. As the Mexicans passed, we emptied a great many saddles. As I got to the top of the casa, I found two men quarreling. <laughs> As I asked what the matter was, and they were both claiming to have killed a certain Mexican who was lying dead some way off. One said he had hit him in the head. The other said he had hit him in the breast. I advised peace until after the fight. Well, after the shooting was over and the Padre's men had had enough, we went out to that particular Mexican who was dead, and sure enough, he was shot in the head and the breast. So they laughed and made peace. About this time, one of the spies came in and reported 600 Mexicans coming. We made an examination of our ammunition and found that we couldn't afford to fight 600 Mexicans with 60 men. So we pulled out. This was in the Mexican War and only goes to show that Captain Hayes' men could shoot all the Mexicans that could get to them if the ammunition would hold out. What was the most desperate fight you can remember, Colonel? The old man hesitated. This required a particular point of view. It was quality, not quantity, wanted now, and to be sure, he was a connoisseur. After much study by the Colonel, during which the world lost many thrilling tales... The one which survived occurred in 1851. My lieutenant, Ed Burleson, was ordered to carry to San Antonio an Indian prisoner we had taken and turned over to the commanding officer at Fort McIntosh. On his return, while nearing the Nueces River, he spied a couple of Indians. Taking seven, he ordered the balance to continue along the road. The two Indians proved to be 14 and they charged Burleson up to the teeth. Dismounting his men, he poured it into them from his Colt's six-shooting rifles. 
They killed or wounded all the Indians except two, some of them dying so near the rangers that they could put their hands on their boots. All but one of Burleson's men were wounded, himself shot in the head with an arrow. One man had four dogwood stitches, that is, arrows, in his body. One of them was in his bowels. This man told me that every time he raised his gun to fire, the Indians would stick an arrow in him. But he said he didn't care a cent. One Indian was lying right up close, and while dying tried to shoot an arrow, but his strength failed so fast that the arrow only barely left the bowstring. One of the rangers in that fight was a curious fellow. When young, he had been captured by Indians and had lived with them so long that he had Indian habits. In that fight, he kept jumping around when loading, so as to be a bad target, the same as an Indian would under the circumstances. And he told Burleson he wished he had his boots off so he could get around good. Here, the colonel paused quizzically. Would you call that a good fight? The deacon and I put our seal of approval on the affair, and the colonel rambled ahead. In 1858, I was commanding the Frontier Battalion of State Troops on the whole frontier and had my camp on the Deer Fork of the Brazos. The Comanches kept raiding the settlement. They would come down quietly, working well into the white lines, and then go back a-running, driving stolen stock and killing and burning. I thought I would give them some of their own medicine. I concluded to give them a fight. I took two wagons, a hundred rangers, and 113 Tawakan Indians, who were friendlies. We struck a good Indian trail on a stream which led up the Canadian. We followed it till it got hot. I camped my outfit in such a manner as to conceal my force and sent out my scouts, who saw the Indians hunt buffalo through a spyglass. That night, we moved. I sent Indians to locate the camp. They returned before day and reported that the Indians were just a few miles ahead, whereat we moved forward. At daybreak, I remember, I was standing in the bull wagon leading to Santa Fe and could see the Canadian River in our front, with 80 lodges just beyond. Counting four men of fighting age to a lodge, that made a possible 320 Indians. Just at sunup, an Indian came across the river on a pony. Our Indians down below raised a yell. They always get excited. The Indian heard them, and it was very still then. The Indian retreated slowly and began to ride in a circle. From where I was, I could hear him puff like a deer. He was blowing the bullets away from himself. He was a medicine man. I heard five shots from the jaggers with which my Indians were armed. The painted pony of the medicine man jumped ten feet in the air, it seemed to me, and fell over on his rider. And then five more jaggers went off, and he was dead. I ordered the two Awakans out in front and kept the rangers out of sight because I wanted to charge home and kind of surprise them. Pretty soon, I got ready and gave the word. We charged. At the river, we struck some boggy ground and floundered around considerable, but we got through. We raised the Texas yell and away we went. I never expect to hear such a noise again. I never want to hear it. What with the whoops of the warriors and the screaming of the women and children, our boys yelling, the shooting, and the horses just a-mixing up and a-stampeding around, and the colonel bobbed his head slowly as he continued. One of my men didn't know a buck from a squaw. There was an Indian woman on a pony with five children. He shot the pony. 
seemed like you couldn't see that pony for the little Indians. We went through the camp, and the Indians pulled out, spreading fan-like, and we a-running them. After a long chase, I concluded to come back. I saw lots of Indians around in the hills. When I got back, I found Captain Ross had four of my men in line. What time in the morning is it, I asked. Morning hell, says he, it's one o'clock. And so it was. Directly, I saw an Indian coming down the hill nearby. And then more Indians and more Indians, till it seems like there wasn't ever going to get through coming. We had struck a bigger outfit than the first one. That first Indian, he bantered my men to come out single-handed and fight him. One after another, he wounded five of my Indians. I ordered my Indians to engage them and kind of get them down into the flat where I could charge. After some running and shooting, they did this, and I turned the rangers loose. We drove them. The last stand they made, they killed six of my Indians, wounded a ranger, but left seven of their dead in a pile. It was now nearly nightfall, and I discovered that my horses were broken down after fighting all day. I found it hard to restrain my men. They had got so heated up. But I gradually withdrew to where the fight commenced. The Indian camp was plundered. In it we found painted buffalo robes with beads a hand deep around the edges, the finest robes I have ever seen, and heaps of goods plundered from the Santa Fe traders. On the way back I noticed a dead chief and was for a moment astonished to find pieces of flesh cut out of him. Upon looking at the Tuawakan warriors, I saw a pair of dead hands tied behind his saddle. That night, they had a cannibal feast. You see, the Tuawakans say that the first one of their race was brought into the world by a wolf. How am I to live, said the Tuawakan. The same as we do, said the wolf. And when they were with me, that is just about how they lived. I reckon it's necessary to tell you about the old woman who was found in our lines. She was looking at the sun, making incantations of cussing us out generally, and elevating her voice. She said the Comanches would get even for this day's work. I directed my Indians to let her alone. But I was informed afterwards that is just what they did not do. At this point, the colonel's cigar went out, and directly he followed. But this is the manner in which he told of deeds which I know would fare better at the hands of one used to phrasing and capable of more points of view than the colonel was used to taking. The outlines of the thing are strong, however, because the deacon and I understood that fights were what the old colonel had dealt in during his active life, much as other men do in stocks or bonds or wheat or corn. He had been a successful operator and only recalled pleasantly the bull quotations. This type of ranger is all but gone. A few may yet be found in outlying ranches. One of the most celebrated resides near San Antonio, Bigfoot Wallace by name. He says he doesn't mind being called Bigfoot because he is six feet two in height and is entitled to big feet. His face is done off in a nest of white hair and beard and is patriarchal in character. In 1836, he came out from Virginia to take toll of the Mexicans for killing some relatives of his in the Fannin Massacre. He considered that he had squared his accounts, but they had him on the debit side for a while. Being captured in the Mayer expedition, he walked as a prisoner to the city of Mexico and did public work for that country with a ball and chain attachment for two years. The prisoners overpowered the guards and escaped on one occasion, 
but were overtaken by Mexican cavalry while dying of thirst in a desert. Santa Ana ordered their decimation, which meant that every tenth man was shot, their lot being determined by drawing of a black bean from an earthen pot containing a certain portion of white ones. Bigfoot drew a white one. He was also a member of Captain Hayes' company, afterward a captain of the Rangers and a noted Indian fighter. Later, he carried mails from San Antonio to El Paso through a howling wilderness, but always brought it safely through, if safely can be called lying 13 days by a water hole in the desert, waiting for a broken leg to mend, and living meanwhile on one prairie wolf, which he managed to shoot. Wallace was a professional hunter who fought Indians and hated greasers. He belongs to the past and has been outspanned under a civilization in which he has no place and is today living in poverty. The Civil War left Texas under changed conditions. That and the Mexican Wars had determined its boundaries, however, and it rapidly filled up with new elements of population. Broken soldiers, outlaws, poor immigrants living in bull wagons poured in. Gone to Texas had a sinister significance in the late 60s. When the railroad got to Abilene, Kansas, the cowmen of Texas found a market for their stock and began trailing their herds up through the Indian country. Bands of outlaws organized under the leadership of desperados like Wes Harden and Kingfisher. They rounded up cattle regardless of their owner's rights and resisted interference with force. The poor man pointed to his brand in the stolen herd and protested. He was shot. The big owners were unable to protect themselves from loss. The property right was established by the six-shooter, and honest men were forced to the wall. In 1876, the property-holding classes went to the legislature, got it to appropriate $100,000 a year for two years, and the ranger force was reorganized to carry the law into the chaparral. At this time, many judges were in league with bandits. Sheriffs were elected by the outlaws, and the electors were cattle stealers. The rangers were sworn to uphold the laws of Texas and the United States. They were deputy sheriffs, United States marshals, in fact, were often vested with any and every power, even to the extent of ignoring disreputable sheriffs. At times, they were judge, jury, and executioner when the difficulties demanded extremes. When a band of outlaws was located, Detectives or spies were sent among them, who openly joined the desperados and gathered evidence to put the rangers on their trail. Then, in the wilderness, with only the soaring buzzard or prowling coyote to look on, the ranger and the outlaw meant to fight with tigerish ferocity to the death. Shot and lying prone, they fired until the palsied arm could no longer raise the six-shooter, and justice was satisfied as their bullets sped. The captains had the selection of their men and the right to dishonorably discharge at will. Only men of irreproachable character who were fine riders and dead shots were taken. The spirit of adventure filled the ranks with the most prominent young men in the state, and to have been a ranger is a badge of distinction in Texas even to this day. The display of anything but a perfect willingness to die under any and all circumstances was fatal to a ranger, and in course of time, they got the moral on the bad man. Each one furnished his own horse and arms, while the state gave him ammunition, grub, one dollar a day, and extra expenses. 
The enlistment was for 12 months. A list of fugitive Texas criminals was placed in their hands, with which he was expected to familiarize himself. Then, in small parties, they packed the bedding on their mule, they hung the handcuffs and leather thongs about its neck, saddled their riding ponies, and threaded their way into the chaparral. On an evening, I had the pleasure of meeting two more distinguished ranger officers, more modern types, Captains Lee Hall and Joseph Shelley, both of them big, forceful men and loathed to talk about themselves. It was difficult to associate the quiet gentleman who sat smoking in the deacon's room with what men say, for the tales of their prowess in Texas always ends, and that don't count Mexicans either. The bandit never laid down his gun, but with his life. So the La Ley de Juega, Mexican law of shooting, escaped to resisting prisoners, was in force in the chaparral, and the good people of Texas were satisfied with a very short account of a ranger's fight. The most distinguished predecessor of these two men was Captain McNally, who was so bent on carrying his raids to an issue that he paid no heed to national boundary lines. He followed a band of Mexican bandits to the town of La Cueva, below Ringgold once, and surrounding it, demanded the surrender of the cattle which they had stolen. He had but ten men, and yet this redoubtable warrior surrounded a town full of bandits and Mexican soldiers. The Mexican soldiers attacked the rangers and forced them back under the river banks. But during the fight, the jefe politico was killed. The rangers were in a fair way to be overcome by the Mexicans when Lieutenant Clendenin turned a gatling loose from the American side and covered their position. A parley ensued, but McNally refused to go back without the cattle, which the Mexicans had finally to surrender. Another time, McNally received word through spies of an intended raid of a Mexican cattle thieves under the leadership of Camelo Lerma. At Resaca de la Palma, McNally struck the desperados with but 16 men. They had 17 men and 500 head of stolen cattle. In a running fight for miles, McNally's men killed 16 bandits while only one escaped. A young ranger by the name of Smith was shot dead by Camelo Lerma as he dismounted to look at the dying bandit. The dead bodies were piled in ox carts and dumped in the public square at Brownsville. McNally also captured King Fisher's band in an old log house in Dimmick County, but they were not convicted. Showing the nature of ranger work, an incident which occurred to my acquaintance Captain Lee Hall will illustrate. In DeWitt County, there was a feud. One dark night, 16 masked men took a sick man, one Dr. Brazell, and two of his boys from their beds, and despite the imploring mother and daughter, hanged the doctor and one son to a tree. The other boy escaped in the green corn. Nothing was done to punish the crime, as the lynchers were men of property and influence in the country. No man dared speak above his breath about the affair. Captain Hall, by his secret service men, discovered the perpetrators, and also that they were to be gathered at a wedding on a certain night. He surrounded the house and demanded their surrender, at the same time saying that he did not want to kill the women and children. Word returned that they would kill him and all his rangers. Hall told them to allow their women and children to depart, which was done. Then, springing on the gallery of the house, he shouted, 
Now, gentlemen, you can go to killing rangers, but if you don't surrender, the rangers will go to killing you. This was too frank a willingness for midnight assassins, and they gave up. Spies had informed him that robbers intended sacking Campbell's store in Wolf City. Hall and his men lay behind the counters to receive them on the designated night. They were allowed to enter. When Hall's men, rising, opened fire, the robbers replying, smoke filled the room, which was fairly illuminated by the flashes of the guns, but the robbers were all killed, much to the disgust of the lawyers, no doubt, though I could never hear that honest people mourned. The man, Hall himself, was a gentleman of the romantic southern soldier type, and he entertained the highest ideals, with which it would be extremely unsafe to trifle, if I may judge. Captain Shelley, our other visitor, was a Herculean black-eyed man, fairly fizzing with nervous energy. He is also exceedingly shrewd, as befits the great concreteness of modern Texas law. Albeit he too has trailed bandits in the chaparral, and rushed in on their campfires at night, as two big bullet holes in his skin will attest. He it was who arrested Polk, the defaulting treasurer of Tennessee. He rode a Spanish pony 62 miles in six hours and arrested Polk, his guide, and two private detectives whom Polk had bribed to set him over the Rio Grande. When the land of Texas was bought up and fenced with wire, the old settlers who had used the land didn't readily recognize the new regime. They raised the rallying cry of free grass and free water, said they had fought the Indians off and the land belonged to them. Taking nippers, they rode by night and cut down miles of fencing. Shelley took the keys of a county jail from the frightened sheriff, made arrests by the score, and lodged them in the new big jail. The countryside rose in arms, surrounding the building and threatened to tear it down. The big ranger was not deterred by this outburst, but quietly went into the mob and with mock politeness delivered himself as follows. Do not tear down the jail, gentlemen. You have been taxed for years to build this fine structure. It is yours. Do not tear it down. I will open the doors wide. You can all come in. Do not tear down the jail. But there are 12 rangers in there with orders to kill as long as they can see. Come right in, gentlemen, but come fixed. The mob was overcome by his civility. Texas is today the only state in the Union where pistol carrying is attended with great chances of arrest and fine. The law is supreme even in the lonely, rolling waste of the chaparral, and it was made so by the tireless riding, the deadly shooting, and the indomitable courage of the Texas Rangers. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.